Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 7 of Frankie's Mama Reads. I am Frankie's Mama, also known as Jess. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Goodreads at Frankie's Mama Reads. So yesterday was Mother's Day, which is crazy to think that we are already in May. I'm sure this year has felt kind of weird and out of sorts for you as well as it has for me with this pandemic slash shutdown and I don't know where you're listening from if you're still in a shutdown or if you're out and about but Mother's Day was definitely different around here and I was thinking since yesterday was Mother's Day that I would talk about a few fictional books where motherhood is depicted in a real way Now, this is my second Mother's Day. Um, I guess both Mother's Days have been inside since my baby was pretty young last time, and also it was freezing last year. This year, not so much with the freezing, but obviously still nowhere to go. So I'm not the most experienced in Mother's Days, but I know that Mother's Day is different for everybody. And motherhood is different for everybody as well. Now, the mothers that I'm going to talk about today all feel very real. They have very real-life experiences. It's fictional books, but they're historical fiction, which maybe that's what makes them feel a little more realistic. But they range in different um, time periods. So we'll be talking about New York City in the 1910s, Quebec, Canada in the 1950s, and North Carolina in 1970. Then I've got one bonus book that I want to tell you about that features a son and his mother, but tells the story in a very different way. All four of these books are highly rated on Goodreads, so I'm excited to do a little bit of a deep dive about each of them today. Before I do so, as always, I want to do my small bookish business shout out. So this week, I am going to be shouting out Esther's Creations. You can find the link in the show notes below. This is an Etsy shop that is based out of Australia. And she has these beautiful bookmarks that have like watercolor paintings on them. So they're all original, they are all handmade, and they really are just beautiful. There's some with carrots on them, um, orange slices, little flowers, there's golf ones, lighthouses, all sorts of beautiful bookmarks. Um, There's also some artwork on there too that you can buy from her. She's got things that would look really cute in your nursery or maybe in your kitchen. Um, because there's some food themed ones, so just really beautiful watercolor and ink artwork that I think you might want to check out and see if you can give Esther some support on her Etsy shop. Right now I am doing these small bookish business shoutouts to try and help out small businesses because I know in our town we have seen a few small businesses have to shut down And, you know, this pandemic is just hurting everybody. So if we can all do a tiny part, maybe that will have a big effect on the world. All right. So since these books range chronologically from 1910 to 1970, 
I figured we would go in chronological order. So that means we are going to start off in 1910 in New York with the book The Girls With No Names by Serena Burdick. Now, I actually talked about this book in episode two, but I didn't talk at all about the character of Jean, the mother. So the main character, Effie, was born with a hole in her heart in 1900, and her parents were told that she just wouldn't survive. But she did. And she has an older sister, Luella, who is healthy and quite bold. She takes risks that Effie just can't, or at least isn't allowed to. The mother, Jean, was overprotective of and always coddled Effie, but she did so because she knew how precious Effie's life was. In many ways, though, she was a different parent to Effie than she was to Luella. I don't think that she meant to be, but this isn't necessarily how Luella saw it. So here's the spoiler-free plot. Effie and Luella grew up in an upper-class family near the House of Mercy. Now, the House of Mercy is a real-life home where girls were sent when they had been deemed sinners. Maybe they had gotten into legal trouble, or maybe they had been caught with a boy, or maybe none of the above. It could have been anything or nothing that got them sent to this terrible place. And it wasn't a reform school, because girls didn't get rehabilitated, and they generally didn't leave. The sisters knew it was a bad place, but they couldn't have imagined just how bad. Their upbringing was upper class, so it was very different from the House of Mercy. One day, Luella and Effie learn that their father has been cheating. Soon after learning this, Luella disappears. Now, Effie is certain that her father sent Luella to the House of Mercy because he had threatened to do so before. So she works out a plan to get herself into the house too. Effie and Luella had been inseparable, um, partly because Luella was supposed to always care for Effie, according to her parents, like to make sure that nothing happened to her, but they also just had a very strong bond. So Effie wanted to reunite with Luella. So she gets into the House of Mercy, but when she gets there, she quickly realizes that she made a huge mistake. Luella is not there. Now she has to figure out how to escape. So the mother, Jean, has now lost both of her daughters. Luella went missing. Effie is gone. And I said spoiler free, so I can't tell you if she ever reunites with either or both of them. But I can tell you that having her two children go missing causes anguish for her as a mother, and she would do anything to get them back. I will say she would do anything to get one of them back more than the other, but to explain why would be a spoiler, so I'm going to have to leave that there. This story is told from multiple perspectives, including Effie and her mother Jean. Now, I love stories written from two perspectives because it helps me understand the actions and emotions of each character better. 
Unfortunately, the characters in the story are just like us in real life in that they don't get to hear each other's perspective. So they don't understand why the other does something or doesn't do something. If they did, then Effie and Luella would understand how deeply their mother loves them and how she would do anything for her children. Another mother who would do anything for her child is Maggie in The Home for Unwanted Girls by Joanna Goodman. This book takes place in Quebec in the 1950s, and this was a time when the French and the English didn't exactly intermingle, or at least not well, and they definitely did not fall in love with each other. Now, I had the book in physical form, but I also downloaded this from my library. So I was able to hear the accent of the names. So bear with me. I am going to attempt to say the names correctly so that I don't butcher them, but truthfully, I will probably butcher them in this attempt. The main character is Maggie Hughes. She's English, so I succeeded there. But Maggie Hughes falls in love with Gabriel Fenix. Now, I'm sure that sounds like a Spanish accent, but I'm sorry, that's that's the best accent that I can muster. So, Gabriel falls in love with Maggie, and Maggie becomes pregnant with his child. Well, her parents do not approve, and they actually force her to move away and give up this baby upon birth. So Maggie carries the baby to term and has a traumatic labor. Throughout the entire pregnancy, though, she expresses love for the baby, even though she knows that she'll have to give the baby up. When she gives birth, she has a girl and asks her mom to please name her Elodie. It's like Melody, but without the M. She isn't allowed to spend time with the baby before Elodie is whisked away and given up. This book is also written from multiple perspectives, so we get Maggie's and Elodie's perspective. Elodie is sent to an orphanage run by nuns. It's a lot like the House of Mercy where Effie ends up in The Girls With No Names. So much so that Elodie could easily be called a girl with no name. Maggie isn't sure that they did indeed name her Elodie. And later on, Elodie's name is changed to protect her at some point in the story. But whatever her name is, Maggie loves her and never stops worrying about her. Maggie is a mother to Elodie, even though... She never gets to raise her, and Elodie isn't even sure if she has a living mother, but she'd do anything to find her. Their connection is so strong. In 2020 now, an unwed mother is considered just as much a mother as any other mother. We don't classify unwed mothers as less than, at least not in official terms. The stigma may still be there in some places, but it isn't labeled the same way it used to be. In 1950, Maggie was shunned, and 
Elodie was labeled a bastard. Maggie's own mother told her, Elodie is not yours, Maggie. She never was. They don't even acknowledge that Maggie is a mother. They steal her child and they try to steal her motherhood. But they can't. Maggie states that her infant daughter will never be complete and now neither will she. Now this isn't a spoiler since it's on the back of the book, but Maggie is now married and in a position to start a family of her own. The trauma of her first labor causes so much anxiety for having another, and she knows that having another baby will not end her grieving or searching for Elodie. Maggie's own mother did not put Maggie first. She put their family reputation before Maggie's safety and own desires. Because of this, Maggie wanted to be a better mom than the one she had, which really shows the impact that the role of a mother can have on a child. This book also shows the lengths that a mother will go to in order to ensure that her child is safe. There is the dichotomy, of course, between Maggie and her own mother, because her own mother would not go to many lengths at all in order to ensure that her own child was safe. But Maggie would go far and wide searching for her child. So this one really shows just the lengths that she went through for Elodie. Another mother who proves she will go to any place necessary to protect her child is Carolyn Sears in The Dream Daughter by Diane Chamberlain. Carolyn is pregnant in 1970 in North Carolina. Her husband Joe died in the Vietnam War before he even knew he was going to be a father. Then Carolyn learns in the second trimester that her baby, who she's named Joanna, has a heart defect that cannot be treated. Due to this diagnosis, she could, in 1970, legally have an abortion at 20-something weeks because of the medical outcome of this fetus. But she chose not to even though she knew that she'd have to deliver a baby that would die shortly after birth if it survived that long. She wanted to give her baby any chance she could of survival, even if it was slim, even if it was traumatic, and even if it was physically hard on her. Carolyn tells baby Joanna in her womb that she is perfect. Joanna is all she has left of her husband. So when Carolyn is offered an opportunity that might save her baby, she takes it. It is risky. It may be costly. But if she doesn't take this opportunity, her daughter will almost certainly not survive. Carolyn actually expresses a fear that all mothers have. The fear that once her daughter is born, she can no longer protect her. That fear is so real. I remember when I was pregnant, 
I was eating fairly healthy. I took vitamins to make sure Frankie got all the nutrients that he needed. Now, Frankie is only a year old, and while I can control what food is available to him, I can't exactly force feed him. So already, at just one year old, I can no longer guarantee that each and every day he'll eat at all, really, his meals. He's, you know, pretty particular about what he eats. So I can't control the amount of protein or vegetables, no matter how hard I try. When I was pregnant, he ate what I ate, so I made sure that he ate well. Now I can do my best, but I can't guarantee anything about his life or his day. And that's with me having a baby who is healthy and has been since he was in the womb. So I can only imagine that for a mother who carried a child with a life-threatening condition, this worry that you can't protect them never really ends. So I'm actually going to tell you a personal story for a minute here. Some of you may know from seeing on Instagram or just knowing me that my father died in 2015 from cancer. That fact alone is a blessing. He was born in 1948, so just shortly before Elodie, with a hole in his heart, just like Effie and Joanna. In 1948, there was still no surgery for this condition. So when he was born, his parents were told that he would not survive past a year, maybe two. But he did. And then around 1953 or so, a doctor in Los Angeles was starting to do surgeries for this at Children's Hospital of LA. So my dad's parents packed up their family of seven at the time and moved from Northern California down to Los Angeles in hopes that this surgery would work. It did. And I even remember his scar. It was a very long line on his back that ran from the top of one shoulder blade and down below the opposite side's rib. So that had to be a risky surgery in the 1950s. And for his parents to move, especially back then, shows the lengths they would go. I used to hear stories about how my grandmother wouldn't let him run too much before the surgery and wouldn't let his siblings get him upset. They didn't want him to cry too much. It sounds like coddling, but having read Jean's perspective of why she protected Effie so much, I get it. Now I have Frankie and I would do anything to make sure he stays safe and healthy and I can't imagine the pain the moms in these books and real life felt having to give up their child, lose their child, or see their child struggle just to live. These three books were eye-opening and make you appreciate life and motherhood even more. Which brings me to the bonus book that I wanted to mention. That book is For One More Day by Mitch Album. You may have heard of this book. It came out in 2006, so it's been out quite a while. And it also was made into a TV movie, I believe. I haven't 
seen that, um, but you may have seen that as well. This book is really a thought experiment about getting the chance to spend one more day with your mom. It's by the same person who wrote The Five People You Meet in Heaven. So if you've read that, this is kind of similar in that idea. In this book, Chick Bonetto is a man who hasn't always made the best choices. He had a father who was inconsistently present at best, but was mostly just absent. But he put a lot of stock in that relationship, which resulted in him not always being the best son towards his mother. As an adult, he struggled with alcohol, depression, failed marriage, and now he is attempting suicide. So he goes to his old hometown to do so, but his suicide attempt is unsuccessful. Then he goes back to his old house and finds his mother still living there, except she died eight years ago. She welcomes him home with open arms, and now he has one more day to spend with his mother. This opportunity is one none of us get, but I'm sure many of us have wished for at some point while grieving. It's an interesting idea, and the role of his mother, while not the main character here, is impactful. He didn't have a perfect relationship with her, and he wasn't always on her side when it came to the divorce. Despite that, when he sees her again, she welcomes him with love and forgiveness. It is such an interesting book and a very interesting idea to get one more day with your mom or with your mother figure in your life or just with anybody that you are grieving especially for someone like Chick in the sense that he needed that one more day because maybe when she was here, he wasn't the best. He had things he needed to ask her forgiveness for. He needed to understand from her. And this book, much like life, is only written from one perspective. So he doesn't understand what she did, why she did it, why she didn't do certain things. He's now given this opportunity to go back and talk to his mother with hindsight, now knowing what he has seen over the years. And he is able to see that despite everything, his mother loves him. And the power of her love has transcended beyond his shortcomings, his failures. And this book really just got me thinking about all the things that we want to say, that we should say now. Because unfortunately, or fortunately, we don't get one more day. Our mother or grandmother, or whoever in our life will have their last day, and we don't get a do-over. We don't get an epilogue to add things to the story. They won't hear it. So 
this book, while it, it, it definitely um, shows the power of a mother's love, it also brings to mind the importance of today. And I think especially during a pandemic when so many people have lost mothers, grandmothers, fathers. For so many people though, Mother's Day was hard this year because of a pandemic. Not just because they couldn't see them because of stay-at-home orders and not just because they couldn't take them to brunch or, you know, see them in person at church, but because they will never see them again. In the U.S. alone, we have lost about 1.3 million people to this disease, and worldwide, we've lost 4 million. So that's a lot of people who are grieving right now, who spent Mother's Day grieving, and they don't get one more day. I wanted to talk about these books today because I see them as showing the strength of mothers. Whether it's the strength while pregnant and carrying a child, you know you may never get to watch grow up, or it's the strength of a mother who loves unconditionally. I debated what books to include for quite a while, and I actually am already working on the books for a Father's Day episode. I don't think fathers always get enough credit. So I'm looking for books that showcase strong fathers, as well as the impact fathers do have on their children, good or bad, similar to some of the stories that I talked about on today's episode. You can look for that episode in June, right after Father's Day. I'll do the same as I did today, post it the day after. And if you are subscribed to this podcast, then you'll get a notification every Monday to listen to a new episode. Until next week, hang in there and keep on reading.